Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we are going to build on our most recent episode. Uh, So the episode that we recorded before this one is on Secure Act 2.0. Congress passed some legislation that affects, uh, well, it affects a lot of things, but it certainly affects retirement, tax law, and some different different intricacies with estate planning. And so uh, if in that episode, you'll find a full recap of some of the things that Secure Act 2.0 covers. We also discuss what Secure Act 1.0 did. Now, in this podcast, I want to discuss a very similar topic. Uh, We're going to talk about where future tax law is going to go. And most importantly, how you can position your assets and your uh, tax plans, retirement plans uh, in light of, of where this potentially goes. Now, when you hear that, you might think that I'm really just going to uh, sit here and make predictions that, you know, who knows whether or not they're going to be legitimate. Uh, But it sounds like I'm just going to be making predictions of where taxes are going to go in the future. And to a certain degree, maybe that's what I'm doing. Uh, But we're also using very concrete things that that Congress has done in the past uh, 15 years that greatly affect your tax situation. And uh, those things really give us a lot of nuggets that we can learn from. Um, And I think it tells us a lot about where future tax increases are going. So with that being said, uh, we'll dive in. Now, you'll notice that uh, Jared is not here on the pod today. He is in Costa Rica. So we've been doing a lot of traveling recently. Jared in Costa Rica now. Um, He also uh, took in the Liberty Bowl in Memphis. Uh, My family, we spent some time in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Uh, visiting uh, visiting my wife's side of the family. We also made a short road trip down to the Sugar Bowl uh, to see K-State uh, unsuccessfully take on Alabama, and then also a short trip to Durango, Colorado. And so we've been all over the place, but uh, that explains why I am alone on this episode, and uh, we'll have Jared back uh, here shortly. Uh, but let's dive in. Where are future tax increases going to come from? Well, In order to answer that question, I think we can really look at where have tax increases happened in the past. Now, I think let's focus on let's focus on a couple different things. So in our in our last podcast, we talk about Secure Act 2.0. Secure Act 1.0, and we did you know an episode on it, I believe. I've I've done a a few articles on it on our website. Uh, Secure Act 1.0 back in 2018. I think that was one of the most substantial tax increases to retirees that has happened in a long time. Um, And so when we think about future tax increases, I think there's a few different buckets that it can fit in. So one of them is we could see indirect tax increases for high income earners. So we'll talk about what it means to have an indirect tax increase and and what history has, has recent history has, has shown us in that regard. Second type of tax increase is only for ultra high income earners. So if you go back to the 2020 election and the debates there, there was a a very specific mantra that was repeated dozens, maybe hundreds of times um, by uh, Biden and his team. 
and that is no tax increases if you make less than 400000 per year. So I do think that when we think about future tax increases, only isolating it to the highest bracket is something we certainly could see. Now, the other thing I want to hit on in this is, will future changes, are they going to continue to target income? Or will we see future changes that target assets? Um, so, you know, you, I think the, the, the scary term there is a wealth tax. Uh, and there's a few ways that that can appear. I also think we're, we really need to mention complexity. So adding complexity can trip up people and, and cause additional tax payments that aren't necessary. Uh, and then the IRS uh, has announced that, you know, in the past few years, they are expanding. They're going to hire more staff, more agents, and I think there will be more audits. And so we'll talk about some of the dynamics there. All right. So let's start with indirect tax increases. Uh, so this podcast, we're trying to think through where is future tax law going? And what is tax law going to look like and how should you position your assets uh, in light of those potential changes? So the most important thing to understand is that indirect tax increases have been happening a lot over the past 10, 15 years. And what I mean by that is an indirect tax increase is, is a situation where your lifetime tax rate is going up over the course of your life, or maybe when your children inherit assets or any whoever's inheriting your assets, at some point, the tax paid on your income or your assets over a long period of time, those taxes are going up. But when I say it's indirect, what I mean there is you're not, you're not in a 24% tax bracket today or a 35% or a 37%. And Congress is now taking your tax bracket from 24% and they're taking it to 44% or taking it from 37% up to 57%. That is not what has happened. Uh, in fact, tax brackets, if, if you look at, at, at taxes over the last 10 years, the brackets have actually gone down. But again, I'm going to repeat something I said just a minute ago, uh, your lifetime tax rate is still going up and it's happening because of indirect tax increases. So if you are 63 years old, you have to start thinking about Medicare taxes. Um, and so this is the first uh, example I want to pinpoint of an indirect tax increase. IRMA tax brackets. Those are brackets that, that tell you if you earned X amount of income, your Medicare premium was going to be this, but now it's going to be this. So in 2006, Irma did not exist. There, there was not additional Medicare premiums that, that took place based on your income. So everyone just had you know normal, normal Medicare premiums. But in 2007, Irma was introduced. And so if you're not familiar, and I mentioned 63, you might be listening to this and thinking, hey, Medicare doesn't start until 65. That is correct. But your IRMA bracket, your Medicare premium is determined on your income two years prior. So the year that you are 63, that's the first year that you have to be cognizant of what your total modified adjusted gross income is. And that will determine when you're 65, when you start Medicare, that's going to determine what your premium is. So again, in 2007, that's when IRMA was introduced on Part B. Now on 2000, uh, excuse me, on Part D, so another part of Medicare, that premium was not introduced until 2011. So again, during this time period, it's not as if, it, it's not a situation where let's just say that you make uh, 
$300,000 a year. Well, if you make $300,000 a year, you would have been taxed at X tax rate. It's not a situation where Congress said, okay, we're going to now tax you. You were paying 1X as your tax rate. We're now going to make your tax rate 1.4X or 2X. That's not happening. Instead, uh, they just really created this extra payment that is essentially a tax. And it just says, well, if this is your income, you're going to pay more on Medicare. So that was an indirect tax increase. Now we have another one, net investment income tax. So net investment income tax is a capital gain, additional capital gains tax that you pay. If you are a single taxpayer in your uh, adjusted gross income is over $200,000, you pay an additional 3.8% on top of whatever your capital gains tax rate is, whether it's 15%. Okay. So now it's 18.8%. Or if you're at the top capital gains tax rate, 20%, now it's at 23.8%. So net investment income tax uh, came about in 2013. We could also talk about alternative minimum tax. That's much older though. And then I I mentioned the SECURE Act. Um, So just a few eh, handful of years ago, the SECURE Act uh, came about and and, and we're thinking, well, I guess SECURE Act was more 2019. I think I mentioned 2018 earlier, but whatever the case, four or five years ago, three, four years ago, SECURE Act came about and that was a massive change. Um, and again, I mentioned this in the last podcast, but the huge change there is if you have substantial IRA dollars. And if you've listened to our episode of why financial planning for oil and gas is is unique relative to other industries and other groups of people, one of the reasons it's unique is because the benefit structure that most of the super majors have enacted. Uh, you typically have a way larger 401k, 401k match than most. Uh, the na- national average, most most people have a 401k match of 3 or 4%. And the typical 401k match at, at any of the major oil and gas companies, much, much higher than that. You also might have a profit sharing component. So an extra contribution in the 401k on top of your match. And then you can also have a pension. So, you know, pensions are kind of a dying breed. Uh, they're really not very common uh, for younger companies. Uh, but if you are if you are in an oil and gas company and you've worked there for 35 years, you probably have a way higher 401k match or and I don't even want to say match. The more encompassing term, correct term would be any employer 401k contribution, whether it's a match, whether it's a bonus they put in the 401k, whether it's a profit share component, whatever the case may be, companies are putting way more money in your 401k, if you're at an oil and gas company, especially super majors, than most other industries, and you have a pension. So all of that means that you are putting huge money all into pre-tax retirement plans. That means you typically have a substantially larger IRA than most other people. And so we've seen time and time again, it's not uncommon for someone to enter retirement with $5 million in pre-tax assets. And you can do that without making enormous annual income every year for a long time. Uh, and so maybe you made two, 300,000 a year, but if you worked at the same company for you know, 30, 40 years, maybe you have an NUA component in, in your 401k and you're staring at huge pre-tax assets. So the SECURE Act was a massive tax increase a few years ago, but it doesn't look like a tax increase because it's very, very indirect. So Congress is not saying you make X amount of dollars and you were paying a 24% tax rate. Now we're going to make you pay a 36% tax rate. 
That's not what's happening here. Instead, it's more hidden tax. It's it's a more hidden tax that says, hey, if this is your asset breakdown, if this is your family balance sheet, or if this is your income, we're going to ding you and add these additional taxes or charges in other ways. So indirect tax increases, they have been very popular. Uh, and briefly, why are they so popular? Well, you know, Congress, if if you're in the Senate or the House, especially if you're in the House, you know, you you have an election every two years. It is very unpopular to tell people, hey, you were making 150000 and you were paying a uh, marginal tax rate of 24% or 22%, and now we're going to make it a 38% tax. That's a very unpopular thing to do. But it's not noticed as much. It's really not publicized as much. And you're not going to face nearly as much pushback if you can make it a situation where you're going to pay additional taxes, but it's 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 kind of muddied. It's not as clear. You may not pay those taxes. It may be your children when they inherit your IRA. Um, and so that doesn't get as much pushback. After all, that could be 30, 40, 50 years down the road. And uh, you've already passed away. What do you care? Or it could be the Medicare tax and it could say, well, who cares if you have to pay an extra $5,000 a year in Medicare premiums? Uh, your income was over $300,000 a year. That's so much income, you should be fine to pay this extra Medicare charge. So that's what Congress has been doing. Essentially, they have been saying, if you're in this level, which you know it looks like you're financially pretty secure, pretty well off, we're, we're, not, we're not even going to increase your tax rate. We're just going to add an extra tax kind of through the side door. And so I think those are going to continue. Um, and it's important to plan around those. So net investment income tax, critically important if you have substantial brokerage assets. So if you have a, a large portfolio that is not in retirement plans, so not in an IRA or 401k, if you have millions of dollars in a brokerage portfolio, it is so important that that is managed in a very careful way to avoid long-term capital gains and short-term capital gains. Uh, you do not want to trigger additional net investment income tax. And if you are 63, 65 and above, Medicare planning is a, a huge part of your lifetime tax rate. Uh, so if you are not carefully examining how much of how much uh, pre-tax assets do you have and what is that going to put your future income at every year in perpetuity for the rest of your life, uh, you could easily pay additional Medicare premiums of $5,000 a year. And if you're married, that could be times two. So you could you could have really substantial Medicare premiums and you think about paying you know five or 10,000 more per year in Medicare premiums over a 20 year period. I mean, we're talking about a lot of money. We're talking about a big six figure number. And so what this means is it's important to understand uh, some of the direct tax planning things like this is your tax rate and you need to do this, this, and this to lower your uh, tax exposure this next year on your tax return. But what it what it really means is you need to understand how your assets are positioned over the next 10 years. And maybe you're not 65 yet. Uh, maybe you're not 63. So Medicare is not on the horizon. Uh, maybe you know children inheriting your IRA is a long, long ways off. But if you don't plan for them now, you won't be able to plan for them later. Once required minimum minimum distributions start, uh, so now at age 73, eventually going to 75, once those begin, 
there's really not an opportunity to do any more Medicare planning. There's not an opportunity to do any more Secure Act planning around inherited IRAs. Uh, and so that's something to be very mindful of. Um, now, you know, a quick note on that. So Secure Act 2.0, it did, it did increase the uh, age at which you are forced to take required minimum distributions from retirement accounts. So on the surface, that sounds like a kind of a break. You know, you don't have to pay, you don't have to take a distribution and pay taxes on it. Uh, but I would, I would really say it's the opposite. Uh, I don't think the IRS cares whether the RMD rate is, RMD age is 70, where it used to be 70 and a half, um, or 72 or 73 or 75. The vast majority of people have to take out their IRA um, just to live on. So they're, they're getting that tax income either way. But what they're doing is they're adding complexity. Um, and so that, that, that's another point to be aware of. Anytime you add complexity to the tax code, you can guarantee that, you know, if there's 330, whatever million people in America, there's going to be a lot of people that get tripped up by that complexity. So if, uh, RMDs get pushed out, but now inherited IRAs, uh, cannot stretch out those distributions over the inherit whoever inherits the account over their lifetime. Now they have to be taken out within 10 years, just adding some complexity to that rule inherently. I mean, no matter what, we know that there are going to be people that mess that up. Um, quick note on that. So we're talking about inherited IRAs, quick coffee break there. Uh, inherited IRAs have to be done in a very specific way. So if you have a parent that has IRA dollars and you inherit that account, the titling and registration of an inherited IRA has to be very specific. Uh, the IRS has that rule in there. And every year there are tons of people that inherit IRAs. They do it incorrectly and they simply take the entire thing as a distribution. Either they just take the entire IRA and they want the cash or they don't set up the inherited IRA properly and it messes it up and the entire amount is taxable as income in the year that that happens. So that is a huge revenue source uh, for the IRS. Simply adding complexity around how do you inherit accounts? What is the right way to set up the account to transfer from the original uh, person's IRA to the inherited uh, child's IRA? What's the right way to do that? A lot of mishaps happen all the time. And uh, that's a big revenue driver. You can imagine if you inherit a $1 million IRA, and uh, you take the entire thing out in, in the year that you're doing this transfer, well, that's a million dollars in income that you now have to pay tax on. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's a few hundred thousand dollars in, in tax that is owed on that. Um, so it's a, it's a really big revenue driver. You know, the other thing with complexity, and you think about uh, some of the other things we brought up, net investment income tax, uh, a lot of complexity there, understanding that, hey, capital gains rates are totally different than income tax. And But here's the you know tricky part. When you calculate your capital gains tax rate exposure, you have to uh, include, you have to count in whatever earned income or retirement income, any income of any kind in that equation. And so it's not, it's not a situation of, hey, I only incurred 175,000 in capital gains, so I'm avoiding that investment income tax. Well, no, if you had 400,000 in income and you incurred 175,000 in capital gains, uh, well, those two have to add together and then that computes your capital gains exposure and will trigger net investment income tax. So if you're listening to this thinking, I have no idea what in the world those brackets are, 
or how to avoid net investment income tax. I'm still not even sure what it is. I mean, the quick definition is it is an additional tax on assets that you sell, additional capital gains tax. Uh, but that's the point. I think a lot of our tax code is complex because uh, that's a big revenue driver. Adding complexity means that there will be little mishaps that happen. And back to, uh, I think I said this at the beginning, but you want to pay the IRS what you owe, but you don't want to leave them a tip. Um, we didn't come up with that. I don't even know who originated that saying. Um, but uh, if you're if you're trying to pay the IRS what you owe and you're not wanting to leave a tip, well, a great way to to not leave a tip is just understanding all of these rules and regulations on the different assets within your balance sheet. Um, so if you have a 401k, a 403b, some of it's after-tax, some of it's pre-tax, some of it's Roth, you have brokerage assets, you have 529 assets, um, you have HSA assets. All of these things in your balance sheet are taxed differently. You might have a primary home, you might have a secondary home. Some of it has a capital gain, some of it doesn't. So everything in your balance sheet is taxed a little bit differently. And adding complexity makes it more likely uh, that you will leave the IRS a tip, uh, if you will. Now, we've talked about complexity. We've talked about indirect increases. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Now let's talk about potential tax changes only for high income earners. So again, um, you know, it's it's been floated out there that uh, no tax increases for people who make less than 400,000 a year. Um, and I think that's very possible um, to, I, I think that tells us that it's very possible we could see the highest brackets increase. So another thing that was floated out there over the past uh, three, four years, capital gains will be taxed as income. Um, so it's just camp out there for 30 seconds. Capital gains tax rates are much better than income tax rates. A huge part of tax planning is simply navigating your balance sheet to pay less income tax and more capital gains tax potentially, or just we can stop it at that, pay less income tax. Income tax is the big uh, driver of revenue. So if they can make capital gains rates, which are much less than income tax rates, if they can make those equal to income tax rates, that is a massive tax increase. And again, it's not popular for Congress to uh, you know, raise taxes on everyone, uh, but it is more palatable. And they you know, often sell it to the public saying, well, we're, it's only going to be a tax increase if you're in the top, top portion of income earners or wealth accumulators in the country. And so I do think it's very possible that we're going to see more legislation that uh, does one of two things, increases the highest marginal tax rate. So right now that is 37% at the federal level. And if, depending on which state you're in, you could here in Texas have a 0% state income tax rate, or you could be in California and have a 13% state income tax rate. But the federal highest income tax rate is 37%. Now, in 2026, that is scheduled to sunset to the prior brackets back in 2017, and that should go from 37% to 39.6%. That's what it's scheduled to do right now. But I do think that we are going to see over the coming decades, uh, I do think we're going to see proposals to take the top bracket and maybe say, or maybe just add an additional bracket that says if your income is over a million dollars, 
you are going to have to pay a much, much higher rate. Could be 45, 50, 60, 70%, um, whatever the case may be. I think having a much higher rate at a the highest, highest income level, I think that is going to be in many proposals. Now, I think the other thing we could see is that same thing done on a capital gains basis. So maybe capital gains rates stay where they are, but for capital gains over $5 million, the tax rate may not be 20% plus 3.8%. They could take that to 30 or 40% plus. So understanding that there could be some mechanisms there, that's that's pretty important. And I think, I think we've all seen plenty of proposals in the past few years that have already said, let's take the highest bracket up. So let's not do tax increases on middle America or anyone under 400,000 a year that's been, you know, parroted so many times. Uh, they don't want to increase taxes in a blunt way on everyone, but they've floated out tons of ideas on increasing taxes for the highest rate or on a capital gains basis for, for people who have extraordinarily large capital gains. Now, I want to pause here and say that everything we've talked about, complexity, indirect tax increases, uh, and just blunt tax increases for the highest income and, and earners and wealth accumulators, all of those things are very related. So if they can take the highest income tax rate from 39.6 and say they bump it to 50% plus whatever your state income tax rate is, well, and they've added complexity in inherited IRA accounts. So if children don't understand that, hey, I'm inheriting this IRA and I haven't followed the rules, I just know my parents passed away and now I have this IRA they won, they've got 10 years to take it out. So does a child know that? Are they going to let nine years go by and let the account continue to accumulate? Well, if that happens in year 10, they have to take the entire thing out. It was much, much easier back in 2017 when you could simply stretch your inherited IRA required distributions out over the next 50 years. The calculation was done automatically. Your brokerage institution helped you figure out that amount and they sent you reminders to do it. Well, now you don't necessarily have to take any portion out each year. You may not take it out for a year or two and then you could be left in year six or year nine or year 10 and hey, you've got a $3 million IRA. You've got to take the entire thing out. You have to, you're forced to. And now your taxable income for that year is going to be $3 million. And that's going to trigger substantially higher tax rates at the highest uh, point. And so, you know, I mentioned that the uh, different legislation changes have increased the RMD age. So five years ago, you had to take your IRA. You had to take a uh, about 4% out starting at age 70 and a half. Well, today at 72, moving to 73, eventually 75. I don't think the IRS cares about that at all. What they do want to do is set it up, add a little bit of complexity so that over the next 20, 30 years, we have the second generation inheriting big IRAs and a lot of them, a ton of them are not going to know or follow all of the necessary rules for how to title and uh, name the account, how to properly fund the account from the initial IRA, and then they will not know or will not execute uh, taking out appropriate distributions every year. Uh, religiously over a 10-year pe period to avoid excessive taxation there. And so I think that is uh, something we've seen. So we've discussed indirect tax increases. Uh, we've already seen Medicare capital gains, net investment income tax. We've already seen inherited IRAs be huge indirect tax increases. 
Uh, tax increases only for high income earners. Let's finish with this uh, complexity. We also discussed that. Let's finish with the uh, topic of, you know, the IRS is greatly increasing their employees. So, you know, you've probably seen the different stories about how many IRS agents are being hired, uh, whether it's support staff or agents. Um, I don't think that's, you know, I we won't even get caught up on that. But if the IRS is expanding their workforce, I think what we're going to see is substantially more audits. And if we're thinking, what are they going to audit? Well, I think there's a few things, and I think it's probably uh, business owners that need to be really mindful here. So, you know, for the for the most part, if you make more than five hundred thousand a year, uh, it's it's more likely that you are a business owner than a W two worker. And, you know, if you're a W-2 worker, it's a relatively straightforward tax return each year, even if you're making 900000 a year, uh, pretty, pretty straightforward tax situation. But if you're a business owner, there's so many, there's a million different deductions and business expenses that you can take. Now, I also think that a huge part of uh, having more audits, I think we're going to see a lot of estate tax audits. And so if you think about uh, some of the most popular estate planning strategies like family limited partnerships. Uh, so the quick example or definition there is let's pretend that you own a business and that business is worth $100 million and you're wanting to leave that to your children. Well, a family limited partnership could allow you to put some or all of the business in the family limited partnership and get a discounted valuation. So the idea is well, this small business is not a publicly traded business. Uh, it's controlled by the family. Uh, therefore, it should get a discounted valuation uh, because if a stranger owned part of an FLP, well, that stranger has no say over what happens <laughs> over those assets. Uh, the family has all the say over that. Uh, so therefore, it's not technically worth, it's not as valuable. So some of those discounting strategies, if you're able to, I'm just going to use round numbers, $100 million business, let's say it gets a $50 million valuation with an FLP. So you're able to gift your entire estate tax exemption for you and your spouse about $24 million. Of the $50 million, about half of the business is able to pass through and not pay any estate tax. But remember, that was a you know business that was technically worth twice as much. So I could see with more audits, more agents, very possible we could be in a situation where they start to challenge some of those rules and say, where did you get this valuation? Why did you get uh, the amount of discount that you did get? Uh, so I think that could certainly happen. And um, you know, the other thing to keep in mind with tax law and with audits, a lot of tax law, you think that it's white and black. But in reality, I mean, some of the biggest tax changes of the past 40 years, when they were enacted, no one had any idea what it actually meant. The greatest example of this is the 401k. So the 401k was a part of legislation in, I think, 1979. Uh, but the first 401k did not pop up until the early 80s. And someone said, well, hey, page 401, paragraph K, I'm allowed to take money from my business, put it in a retirement plan and get a tax deduction. And eventually it went to court and the court said, yep, that's what you're able to do. Um, and so no one, the, the day this legislation was introduced, no one knew that that meant that, Hey, 401ks are now going to be the, you know, trillion dollar industry where everyone saves uh, long-term wealth. 
And fast forward a decade, and after some some court rulings, it said, yes, that's exactly the purpose behind this, and that's that's good to go. So I mentioned that to say there's so many things within the tax code and, and tax strategies that uh, are not as black and white. And, and I've heard so many CPAs say that they wish it was more black and white. Um, they want clear direction. Uh, but I think with more agents and more audits, you may see some of the estate strategies um, and different estate tax situations uh, come under a little more scrutiny. And a lot of questions will be asked on, hey, is this exactly what the law is intending to do? And so this is uh, just a quick rundown of some of the things that uh, could be on the horizon when we think about the next 10 years of tax changes. Uh, so we don't necessarily know for sure what's going to happen, but we do have a lot of precedent over the, over the last 10 or 15 years uh, that tells us that, hey, there's going to be a lot of tax changes that may not you know, just simply make your tax rate from, make it go from 24% to 38%. But we do know that there's going to be a lot of other things that will affect how your balance sheet is taxed over time. And understanding those things will really help you do what we said earlier, pay the IRS what you owe, but not leave a tip. That's all for this time. Uh, if you have any questions, send us a message and uh, look forward to talking with you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.